I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch doesn't want you to take this as a threat or anything, but it does know where you live. You know where everyone lives, actually. SoundCloud tracks your location. <laughs> Tells us. Like, um, you're yeah, in Auckland, kind of New that, Zealand. <laughs> they think that big data is just for the big companies. I know. For 80 bucks a month. It's like, don't worry. We know this person's mother's maiden name. <laughs> One thing that's funny about it, though, is they have, like, clearly regions. Like, you don't have specific towns. You just have, like, regions where there's a... It's not like, like, here's every suburbanite town in, in Minnesota. It's like, you're either in Minneapolis or you're in fucking Duluth. That's it. <laughs> and occasionally there's listens in, um, like, the Asian subcontinent. Yeah. And I'm like, I, and I'm like, thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you're not learning English from us. It's probably just people using a VPN. They forgot to log out. <laughs> I, you know. Yeah. We, I welcome listeners from all around the world. Yeah. Really hope you're not taking any cues on how to speak to human beings from how Aaron yeah, and I please talk. Please do not. <laughs> yeah. Where we love to watch, not a way to learn to interact with your fellow human beings. We're a podcast. We're a movie podcast. A bad source of English. Bad source of English. Bad source of correct correct pronunciations of people's names uh, or even remembering what their names are even if we've said it moments before. I got you people have calling, face blindness. I got name blindness. You keep calling uh, Rory Kinnear Rory Calhoun. That's the new one. I do keep calling him. And you know who I keep I, I keep calling Who is Fred Rory Ward, Calhoun? Ward? I don't know. I, I keep calling Fred Ward Burt Ward. Um who is Robin on the Batman yeah. show, right? Roy Calhoun is someone. I call Fred Ward Burt Ward because Burt is a different character in Tremors. <laughs> Fred Ward in Tremors. <laughs> Roy Calhoun. I think I know that. I've never seen any of these movies he's in. He's like a 60s, 50s sitcom star, but I've never heard of any of the sitcoms. 100% I know that name from a Mystery Science Theater 3000 joke that I didn't understand. <laughs> but for some reason, the name has locked... In my head, but yeah, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme and do movies over the course of the month around that theme, and we're doing the evolution of John Cusack. More specifically, we are taking two pairs of his films and that we find or I have noticed have some similarities, and in a very specific way. They're almost a tonally similar movie. One from the perspective of a high school student and one from the perspective of someone in his late 20s, early 30s. The first pair, which we're going to complete today, was Better Off Dead and Gross Point Blank. And then starting next week, we'll do Say Anything and High Fidelity. Uh, High Fidelity is also a perfect lead-in to uh, our double month in the summer, which we'll announce soon. But uh, Gross Point Blank is... It takes a pair to make a sack. The John Cusack experience. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, uh, if we were going to write a book on this topic, we're no Ethan Warrens, but uh, but that's a perfect Author title. Author of War and Peace? Yeah, War and Peace. <laughs> Ethan War and Peace. He's a, he's a potent potable, or whatever, <laughs> whatever they're called on the 
Both he's a he, that's the Ethan Warren uh, before and after clue. So uh, we did Better Off Dead last week, which is a movie that is about a high school student who uh, is ends up being heartbroken and uh, by one girlfriend falling in love with another girl. Meanwhile, it's surrounded by uh, death. It has a very dark sense of humor. It doesn't take human see human life as all that valuable in in some respects. Uh, in some respects, it's kind of getting around that uh, the your world can feel like it's falling apart when you lose the love of your life. Um, but it's it's what I would call a very unsentimental love story. And the reason it reminded me so much of Gross Point Blank is I think that is a perfect way to describe Gross Point Blank. It is a almost aggressively unsentimental love story. It is definitely about two people that love each other and have loved each other for a long time. But it has a very realistic sense of that love, as as one of the characters says, like, you know, when someone returns to you, maybe they're – you don't need to forgive and forget. They can come back broken. Like, it has a very realistic sense of, like, people – they're not the same lovebirds that they were in high school when the whole world was in front of them. They've been hurt. They've gotten more cynical. The feelings they've had for each other don't necessarily go away. And then, of course – the plot of the movie, the kind of high concept plot of this movie is that John Cusack's character is a hitman who kills people for money. And he has fundamentally decided that human life does not have much value. And um, the movie is really told from his perspective. So there's a lot of like from a, a very bleak sense of humor, there is a lot of, uh, you know, uh, comedy moments that are hinged on the f- how unimportant people's deaths are in the movie. Um, I-, I think that's the good way to describe. It. Did you, Peter? I'm the one that kind of when I watched Better Off Dead was like, oh, this reminds me at least tonally so much like Gross Point Blank. Did you get that sense? Would did you feel that way watching this? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not obviously not in the realm of parody at all. No, um, it doesn't try and parody hitman movies. Um, the closest no, it's, it's it not. Has, it doesn't use surrealism. The closest it has is that at one point they blow up a standee for Pulp Fiction. Yeah, um, like there's there's very uh, there's there's no surrealism at all. But I get I get what you're talking about, which is like in it, John Cusack is sort of. Um, Emotionally stunted, um, he is surrounded by d- a dysfunctional form of a family. Yeah, uh, he's trying to pursue uh, romantic relationships, but at the whole time he is just completely broken on the inside. Um, and uh, and in denial, I, I can see about it. I in denial about it, and I can see, I can see that sort of. Um, Oh, and, and, and the way that he becomes, like, obsessive about those romantic relationships. Yeah. Yep. And, like, sees them as formative or central to his existence. Without yep. without that, he he um, he falls apart. And something I, I, I really like about Better Off Dead, but, like, you could easily miss, is that Better Off Dead, actually, Monique is not there to replace Beth. Yeah. <clears throat> Monique is there to make him see his inherent self-value, and it's kind of just following... And that life can go on without the other person. Yeah, like, literally, like, dude, like, you've got all all these these things in your life, like, just 
literally pick one up and like show some engagement with it and we're we're good and it's a it's it's ultimately one of those movies that kind of has the very basic message like you're not really ready to love somebody until you love yourself that kind of thing yeah um which i have you know it's a complex idea but like uh, sorry, it's a fairly basic idea that has a lot of complexity to to how you yeah. interpret that. And I Better Off Dead does very, it really well. I can see it being very offensive to people that are, you know, like me, sometimes like depressed. Yeah. Um, I think I could be a great husband even when I don't love myself. Um, but yeah, it's not um, lights out. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hate that movie. I do too. I don't Man. Uh, smile was like smile was like three lines away from getting the the lights out. Yeah, hit hit him with the stick kind of thing. Um, but anyways, the point is that you know you take all of that, you can easily uncharitably can interpret Better Off Dead as a movie about a guy who's very depressed about losing his girlfriend until he um, meets a uh, cuter, more exotic woman who gets <laughs> to replace that particular spot in his life, yeah. and then he stops being depressed because now he has a new woman to obsess over and drive across the country with. Um, and, uh, or I guess only a couple states. We, we figured out that the Brooklyn Dodgers had already become the LA right, Dodgers the LA by the time Dodgers, the movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so they drove from Utah. News took a while to get to France. <laughs> um, but, uh, I can see that, especially if you're like, okay, what if, like, the Monique thing kind of fell apart and yeah. he either became obsessed with her or he became obsessed with a different person and, um, you know, a little bit later in high school. Um, yeah, you can see him fixated. as like, th- it's it's obviously like this isn't Lane 10 years later. But and it feels like War Inc. is a, kind of a sequel to Gross Point Blank. It's not, though. He's still a different character name and everything. Like, yeah, but they've got like, they've got like Joan Cusack as the handler. He's it's 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 like a pretty similar character, too. Uh, it is. But I think it's taking that concept and putting it into the Iraq War and and also making a bad movie out of it, I think is the other. No, thing no, J- War Inc. sucks. I've been joking about yeah. wanting to cover it. Yeah, for about I don't want to. Now. I don't want to cover. Um, but yeah, I, I also like. So this was a very formative movie for me. Um, I watched it on a whim. I'd never seen a John Cusack movie. I don't think I was like hyper familiar with even him as an actor. Really, um, you know, I worked at a video store, <coughs> and so like I saw him on the cover of stuff. But this was like an early, like my first week on the job. I'm like, oh, this I think was it still in the new release section. Um, and I was like, oh, this, you know, has like two thumbs up. It maybe doesn't have two thumbs up, but it had some good poll quotes. It looked cool. Mini Driver was cute on the cover. And I was like, she's so cute. She oh she is. We're going to talk about that. Like she was one of my like this care. Her character in this movie is probably one of my like formative high school like crushes on like a character in a movie. Um, cause she's, she's so, so adorable. In this. She's so great in this movie. Um, and, uh, I even saw, I saw this before I even saw Goodwill Hunting. So they both came out the same year. Um, but I, I just kind of watched this on a whim and I was immediately like, again, the dialogue, the way everything is really underplayed in this high concept thing, obviously seeing, <laughs> you know, this version of the John Cusack character, which we talked about last week, that's very easy to relate to and kind of idolize in a certain way. Dan Aykroyd and all those other things. It just like was like, I loved every minute. This is a movie that I became evangelical about, would constantly show to my friends in, in high school and in college and just be like, this is one of the my favorite movies I've ever seen. It also 
featured a bunch of music that I had never heard before either because my parents weren't cool enough to listen to any of this. And the whole point is it's movies, it's music from 86 or like earlier. Um, and obviously has is influenced somewhat by John Cusack's own like music sensibilities, which obviously is a big part in some of his other later movies where he had creative control. This is uh, I Call Rudy Can't Fail, still probably my favorite Clash song. And the reason I say that is it was the first Clash song I ever heard. I heard it in this movie. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, what the fuck is this song? This is one of the best things I've ever heard in my life. And I went and bought the soundtrack and then I got London Calling. It's the first time I ever heard fucking Here Comes Your Man by the Pixies. And I'm like, I th- uh, it was either on the soundtrack or so I was looking for songs that I liked. And the, like literally when you had to go remember a lyric from the song and where it takes place in the movie and then watch the credits, like fast forward to the credits and be like, Okay, okay, I think that one was Here Comes Your Man. Like, that's how I had to, you know, find songs uh, for I'm, I'm just old enough to have had to do that and have absolutely no nostalgia for, like, no. calling in radio stations to figure out what no. song that was. No, I mean, the Joe Parra thing was, like, uh, with The Who. Um, this also, like, either even other songs that, like, I didn't – I mean, the Pixies and the Clash, to this day, I would consider two of my favorite, if not my favorite bands of all time. Uh, give or take a few other ones in there. Uh, I discovered them both from this movie. Even other bands that like didn't become so important to me, but I ended up loving and listening to a few of their albums. Like it's the first time I ever heard fucking Echo and the Bunny Man and the Killing Moon is in this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the first time I heard um, shit. What's the other? Oh, uh, uh, the English Beat and Ear- Mirror in the Bathroom and that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I kn- that kills a guy to English Beat in this movie. Yeah, I mean, all like these these so- these bands that I didn't know existed, and these songs I had never heard before. And I watched this movie so much, you know, you just get to know the songs. And so this movie was like really formative. It also, as I said last week, it set me off on a John Cusack thing where I started to watch things like uh, Say Anything, and like one of the reasons I was obsessed or so excited to see Almost Famous when it came out, which was also one of my favorite movies for a long time was because, like, I had discovered – I'd never seen Jerry Maguire. I discovered Cameron Crowe from watching John Cusack movies and having Say Anything be one of my favorites and then being like, oh, my God, this director is just fantastic. And, like, watching – is it that Jerry Mag- – he did that Jerry Maguire that everyone joked about, you know, two, three years ago? I guess I'll check that out. And, and watching, like, singles, which is not very good, but um, – uh, and then, of course, like – At the time, at least, it felt like they were making movies for – your generation or like an experience that you hadn't seen. It's one of those movies that like, I get why there are people, there are grown men that like it a lot, but it's, it's a movie that I watched like after I had gotten out of that part of my life. And I was like, what is this shit? Singles. Yeah. Oh, I think it was interesting. Cause like I missed grunge. Like, cause I mean, grunge, like I got into Nirvana, I think at like in the, and like those types of bands, like in the late nineties, because I mean, mm-hmm. I was, seven when singles came out right like mm-hmm. so I, so it was like it was interesting to be like oh this is like the generation x like that mm-hmm. those those people 10 years older like what their single life was to their soundtrack so i mean it was it was it wasn't wasn't something like i hated but um obviously not as good as like say anything or jerry mcguire or almost famous um and then it also like it made me like again i i watched high fidelity as soon as i possibly could i didn't go to theaters where i lived I rented the first day it came out VHS and became obsessed with that movie and showed it to everyone. So, like, this this was just also just a huge formative movie for me in both, like, what kind of movies I ended up watching. Like, 
what uh, and you know something that gets a little more complex too like what i envision my uh what i envision that i would be as an adult dating out of high school like i know that sounds weird but like that kind of like obviously not the murdering for money <laughs> but that kind of like two people who could be witty and funny and enjoy each other's company. That was like my idealized relationship. Like, and so you don't so, have to be an MRA. You don't have to be an MRA to be like, this is uh, a particular mode of masculinity that I aspire to. Like, you don't have to be. You don't have to be um, a like a, a a child to be like. That's the type of adult I want to be. Like. You, it's 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 a perfectly healthy reaction to being like, I don't know where I'm going to be. I hope I end up like that guy. Yeah, in that kind of like almost feeling impervious to being hurt, right? Like I had we, – we may talk a little bit with high fidelity. Like I had a really tough situation like when I was in – uh, my sophomore year in high school, I had a gr- I had a big group of friends, and I had a falling out with like one of them, and essentially like this group of like thirty friends took. We're like we've known him longer, like you're you're kind of out of the group, um, which sucked. I made a bunch more friends relatively soon, but in that other period, I also met the, my high school girlfriend, like that I ended up dating for two years of high school, and like. You know, I, I was kind of – and then eventually broke up with her I think like right before my senior year. We'll talk about this way more in the High Fidelity episode. Um, but like I – as I was watching some of these movies, like I don't think I was like – you know, you talked a little bit last week about like knowing what it felt like to be depressed in in high school. I, I was a version of that. I wasn't suicidal but I did aspire to feel like no one could hurt me, right? Like to, to kind of looking at like how how could I how could I be in a situation where I, it's great if I have personal relationships, but I'm not invested in any of them enough to be hurt by them ultimately. You were yeah. aspiring to be um, numb and detached. Yeah, I mean a little bit, like because I wasn't numb and detached. You know me a lot. Like that just isn't my personality. It's not um, mine either. That's why I hurt so much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, like, it, you know, you, when you kind of, like, uh, when you're, like, when you see someone like a John Cusack in this movie or even, like, later on where uh, in some of the other movies that we'll talk about, it was like, a, oh, he's not emotionless. He can He can feel love. But he's also constructed a world that doesn't rely on human relationships. And there was something, like, you know, when I was 16 years old um, – that was something that like spoke to me in a very specific 16 year old way. Um, so yeah, this movie was incredibly formative for me just all the way around. I, it had a backlash, any movie that's that formative and has some things about yourself. That's embarrassing that you remember thinking, um, you know, you watch it when you're like well adjusted and, and 28 or whatever. And you're like, Oh, I'm embarrassed. I, I feel embarrassed of some of the things that I was going through at that time when you watch it. And so, like, I had, like, a stretch where I, I docked it down from, like, a five-star movie to a four-star movie. But in the last couple of years, I watched it. <coughs> I watched it a couple of years ago and watched it again last night. Like, I've overcome that. And I've been like, no, this movie's great. Like, I don't need to have the same. I don't. 
need to either have the same emotional attachment that I had to John Cusack's character in this movie or the embarrassment that 16-year-old me had a certain emotional attachment to this character in this movie. And I can just, like, love it for being a very funny 90s, like, I I think it's a good, uh, fun relationship story. Um, I think it's a great, like, bleak uh, comedy and, uh, you know, very much a – I know this is a common – sort of a common thing that even sometimes makes my eyes roll, but like a mildly budgeted adult movie for adults that they just don't make anymore either. And what's funny about this movie is like, this is not even a movie for 40 or 50 year old. I mean, no. it's like for 40 year old, but it's not a movie for 50 year olds. Certainly. No, this is a movie about 30 year olds featuring 30 year olds, give or take two years. Right. It's, I mean, it's such a Gen X movie. It literally is like the Gen X thing of like, should we even have kids? Cause our parents were so, you know, the greatest generation was so terrible at raising us. Like, it's, it's the one happy moment at the at the reunions. Yeah, but, like, that's what they talk about, which is, I mean, so much of, like, Gen X thing was, like, having families and kids is, like, s- stupid. And I miss that. I was more, like, I'm, I feel like the millennial generation, in the broadest terms, is a little more, like, hey, what if we have, like, well-adjusted families and try? Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to our parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what? It, like I, I think w- our generation was that we will not, we will make a lot of the same mistakes because that's how it works. Yeah. Um, our generation was um, a little bit more optimistic about being able to be like, no, fuck that, I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. Like if something made made us miserable as kids, I, I feel like most of my friends are like, no, we're not doing that. That yeah. I hated that as a kid. Yeah. I don't think it brought me any anything but suffering. Yeah. I'm noticing that a lot with things like clubs and activities for kids. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who have like three to five year olds right now, and they're like trying to figure out if the kids want to be in soccer yeah. or whatever. And they're like, they're like, you know, they got kids that are pumped for it and that like makes their life happy. And then they've got kids that they're like, I really want them to know how to make friends in an athletic activity and to bond with a team. But I can't just sign them up to do a thing they're going to hate, and yeah. I have to drive them to every day, and they hate it for like. Yeah. weeks yeah. um whereas like with our parents generation they're like we paid the 500 hundred dollar fee or whatever you're you're in the team <laughs> well also like they really thought like hey i didn't like playing soccer either and i had to but now for some weirdo reason i look back at it fondly and so i'm gonna make you like it's that it's the calvin and Hobbes dad thing like it builds character. Like someday you're going to look back on this fondly and our generation did not look back on any of it fondly. I feel like we're just like, actually, no, that sucked so bad. Like I never felt like I learned anything from that. And I don't know why you've incepted yourself to think this was a good experience for you, but I am not going to do that to my kids. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I have a, if, if my, my child uh, really, really wants to play soccer, hell yeah, I'll be there every, yeah. every week. But like the weird thing that where I was a kid and my parents just kept signing me up for teams I and I was like, I don't like football. I know. <laughs> but they were like, they were like, you're a fat kid. You're playing football. <laughs> Yeah, the amount of things I got signed up for. Also, like it sucks too. Like I've told, I told you I bought a piano in the last year and like yeah. have done some fun stuff playing lessons. And it's like, but my parents signed me up for piano lessons when I just had no interest in it. And then like I did it for as long as they forced me. I never wanted to practice. And like 
ultimately then like, you know, 10 years later, I'm like, oh, I kind of regret it. But I don't look back on like, I should have stuck with it. Like my parents said, it's like they tried to, you know, they tried to make a second grader whose hands weren't doing what his mind said yet, had no control over his body and only (laughs) wanted to spend time watching cartoons and play Ninja Turtles. You made him do piano and made him hate it for like, you you did not help is what I'm saying. (laughs) So I... Jumping back to kind of like the the, this movie, the yeah. personal personal portion of this movie, I would say this only movie. <clears throat> this is the only movie um, this month that I don't have a like fairly deeply personal reaction to. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite like it. I find it incredibly charming. I think the romance works great. I think the action bits mostly work well. Like I think it's a uh, it's a top notch rom com, especially in an era where we're not making these kind of movies anymore. No. And it's unique within this batch, even, right? It like is. John Cusack, John Cusack would go on to make a bunch of really bad rom-coms. Like, it's not like John Cusack made ten great rom-coms and disappeared. <laughs> and, like, um, this type of, like, Raising Arizona, Miami Blues, like, dark-edged, um, you know, one of the two people should be in jail, but you're still rooting for him because uh, yeah. because the love story's so good and, like, they're so charismatic as people – like they don't th- so many of those were not hits or like or were terrible as well like i mean i'm bringing up miami blue specifically cuz obviously like the only two movies that you know george armitage from is miami blues and gross point blank but which affected the film the ending of this movie yep yeah um but the one thing that i do there's a couple things that i like directly identify with some of that is just like cusack is just like so relatable as a a guy who is not He's, he's not a jock, but he's not completely inept and awkward and can't talk to girls. Like, I, my problem was not that I couldn't talk to women. It was that I had emotional problems that I needed time to sort out a little bit longer than I think, you know, some people did. Um, my problem was not being uh, terrified of talking to women and needing to hide in the basement. Um, I... Uh, my problem was more that, like, I would get way too attached when I would get in these relationships and I would have, like, the strange memory. I am now, I'm 32, so I'm a little older than the characters in this movie. For some reason, I feel like all the characters in this movie are way older than me. I, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm, I'm 39 as we record this. Um, and yeah. They feel, people, they don't feel. They 20. feel 10 years older than me. Yeah. I think John Cusack, when he made this, was around 30. I think he's 19. Oh, he, he's, a, he's, yeah, he's a. He's like the age of his character in this movie. He's a more, yeah, more or less, yeah. yeah. Um, but I so many drivers. I, I, I don't have a lot of hangups about high school because I I had a generally a good time when I wasn't depressed, and the arc was generally like the first couple of years I was very depressed, and then I learned to live in my own brain a little bit better, and then I made a lot of friends and, and learned how to date, and then yep. the second half of high school, I had a much better time, than, as good of a time as you can expect living with yeah. a hormonal crazy brain, right? Yeah. yeah. I partied a lot. I never got in trouble. I had friends. Like I, I, I can't. I can't say that. I can't say that I had a bad time in high school. Yeah, I had, I had a great sophomore year, a terrible junior year, and a great senior year. That was yeah. kind of my. Yeah. I, I can't. I can't really. You know. I can't really fault it. I don't have. I don't have I any nostalgia. I've noticed. Like I don't. I'm not one of those people though. Like I. I was actually going to ask you because you've passed one. Have you gone back for a class reunion? I have not, but I still have like. I would say I would say like ten friends. Oh, to like let's say yeah. two to 
two to five that are like I'm actually like still very close with. Mm-hmm. And then another five to ten people that like I catch up with and then we share yeah. a bunch of photos with each other. And like I just got a drink with a friend that I went to high school with because she, she was in San Diego. Yeah. And like it was great. We got together. We took a picture together or whatever. I, yeah. I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm the same. Like, and actually, I'm because so many times you go back to Bismarck, North Dakota, specifically. Like, and you, if you go out, you see all your old high school friends, like, or some <laughs> of your old high school friends. So that's sort I, of the thing in in like North Side of Chicago for me yeah. because I went to high school in the suburbs and then I went to college in the city. Yeah. So I mean, I I have a few that I'm still somewhat close to and will chat with occasionally, and like if they were to come into town or stuff like that, and then. Um, and then, yeah, a, a lot that, like, when we end up running into each other or being in the same proximity, that's like, oh, you're going to be here. Let's go. You know, that kind of thing. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I don't But they're exclusively have... all from my senior year of high school when I changed friend groups pretty dramatically. Yeah, but you got to you got to choose better. I mean, in college, I, I did, switched yeah. friend groups at some point, and, and it was much better because I got to, like, pick the people that were yeah. in the same state of life that I was in. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, 100%. I, I upgraded pretty big. It's yeah, it's fine. Those I don't have any ill will towards any of those people, but like you know, I we weren't a great fit freshman year, and then around sophomore junior year, I found better friends. Whatever. Yeah. Um. So I don't really have a lot of nostalgia for high school, except for occasionally, specifically related to my friends who I'm still friends with, like just random funny things that happen yeah. to us in the way that you're nostalgic about life. I do not think about high school very often. I do not have. The issue that he has in this. However, I think you'd be lying. I think most people would be lying. Even Mm. people that are saying what I'm saying, which is like, I generally had a good time. No real hangups. Most people be lying if they don't have at least some sort of thought in their head. Like, man, I fucked that relationship up. Yeah. Or, man, I really wish that I had been nicer to that person. Or, like, you know, just... I, I imagine most people exist with some because the years are so intense and yep. you're still young enough that like those years drag mm-hmm. like four years passes so fucking fast in your 20s and you're going into your 30s. But like four years is an eternity when you're 14. Right? Oh, yeah. It, it does um, feel like each of those years was a decade, right? Because we had high school in North Dakota that was just sophomore. Uh, ninth grade was considered part of junior high in, in Bismarck. Um, but. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. It's just they just feel like you're working, you're going to school, you're every chance you get, you're hanging out with friends in between all that other stuff. Like, of course, there's like relationships, there's dates, there's friendships. There's all, the what's funny is like I my biggest part of like if I I don't have nostalgia for high school, but the nostalgia I have for those years is like it was kind of fun when you could spend a Saturday like with 20 people in a giant parents basement and just be like, we're going to watch three movies. And like, that's how we're going to spend our Saturday. Like that kind of like simplicity is a little, the simplicity and like the freedom to just be like, I really have no responsibilities today. Like we're going to do this. And then one of my friends has an indoor pool and we're going to go swimming. And then we're going to watch like, you know, just no expectations beyond just like, we all have the day free and we're going to spend it together. Like that, that is the part that like, I'm, I'm not nostalgia like it because I miss hanging out with those people specifically, but that feeling of, I have no responsibilities whatsoever. And I just going to hang out and do fun things. That's where I get a little bit nostalgic. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my college experience was not the thing where I was in like a small town and there were like, 
my college experience was a little different because I went to school in in Chicago. Like yeah. when you go to city college, the Big Apple, kind of, it's just kind of the Big Apple, mm-hmm. um, the city that never sleeps. Um, uh, but the land Jewel of the, the rising, rising sun, sun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What the fuck was that? Uh, I don't know. We uh, synced up at the exact same time. Very creepy. Um, but like the, the, I think the college experience of going to college, like college, I didn't feel like when I was in college the same way that like my friends that went to like Indiana University or or uh, U of I or ISU or any of the like the Illinois Iowa colleges. Yeah. I don't. I don't think I had the same experience as them because I was just kind of like dropped in the middle of the city. I wasn't in this like playground for adults that like a lot of college towns are yeah um and so it's a a little bit different and high school is like where i have a little bit of the nostalgia for the thing you're talking about i don't have anybody that i'm hung up on 10 years later no um i feel like i've luckily sorted most of that out but it is an incredibly intense time it's a formative time for your brain it's the first romantic relationships you're probably for probably yeah yeah forming requited or unrequited um and the idea – and there's parts of this movie that are deeply sad. Like, the idea that they're both hung up on each other is in some ways very cute, but in some ways, like, deeply sad. It's been 10 years. I I lived an entire lifetime between graduating high school and, and, graduate, and when I would have gone back for my class reunion. I had moved across the country. I had gotten married. Like, I – I had made all new groups of friends. I had changed careers. Like, you just like the amount of life that was between there and to, and to imagine that like whole time still being anchored to a thing that didn't work out. is like very objectively, I think pretty sad, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Like that. It is interesting that. And some of this is like the manic pixie dream girl, like who's writing the movie. But it is interesting that, like, obviously you, you're not hearing his thoughts or you're not hearing Minnie Driver, Debbie's thoughts the same way you are John Cusack, who's talking to his psychologist. And you really understand, like, A, that he's been extremely hung up on her, having recurring dreams about her and, like, sees her as as um, his way to escape and like start over as a new life, which she's explicitly calls him out on it later in the movie for. Um, but it is interesting that like the second she sees him, all of her, like, I don't know if she was obsessed with him in the same way. And it's just hard to gauge because the character doesn't really talk about it, but clearly all of the feelings immediately come rushing back and they quickly start back to where they left off. I, Okay, there's a few things I absolutely love. So after saying the thing I just said, yeah. one thing I absolutely love about this movie that I do find relatable is I think everyone has been in a relationship that should have ended and then relapsed into it. Oh yeah, um, and um, I definitely one of the reasons I relapsed is because of high fidelity in my long high school. Rela- like I was like, man, I'm I'm doing great. I'm having friends. Blah blah blah. I go on these dates and I there's no relation to what comes of it. I was happiest from a rule romantic standpoint with my with the girl i dated for two years or whatever it was and then like we we had this we had that like we hadn't really talked we hadn't really seen each other we we ended up like being together one night at random literally at like a weird uh, karaoke place for high schoolers that existed i don't know i'm not sure why and then like 
we ended up talking for three hours and literally like I remember we came back into the group of friends and like holding hands and everyone's like, oh my God, are you guys back? Like we hadn't talked in a year and we're immediately back together and we dated for a month and it was like – and then it was a very amicable end at the end of that without any unrequited. They were like, this is – never mind. <laughs> yeah. I had something similar yeah. where I didn't talk to this particular person for like a year yeah. and then – um, we saw each other and then we immediately started making out within about yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, not quite in 10 seconds like this, but like, I get the thing where you're like, we had such an intense like bond yeah. and then you break that apart, but like, you still have the like physical mm-hmm. magnetism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you've forgotten your brain is just conveniently forgetting all of the, the painful the reason or the reasons that you broke up. Yeah. Yeah, the logical, very clear reasons why you should not be together very yeah. sometimes fall apart when you're, you're clo- in close contact. Yeah. Why you probably shouldn't see each other after you've broken up for good no. reasons. Um, yeah, so I get like obviously like, ten years is a lot, but I can buy it, especially with the. Yeah, I'm not saying I would still fi- have that moment happen, right? But it, I'm just saying that, like you know, especially when you're young and you're feeling more intense, like I, I can see that I understand the moment where they just throw each other at, at each other. Whether or not she's been thinking about him nonstop for 10 years. And, like, he says he's having recurring dreams about her for six years. So, it implies that he in some way, like, he's he's in some way he's come back to her. He's, bro- he's like, yeah. broken away, got hung back up on her. You know, like, it, it's not, like, every – it's not as creepy as all of that. But it is, yeah. like, it's sad. Well, I mean, he really has been, though, like, he's had no emotional growth, right? Like, that's kind of the plot of this movie, that he, I mean, he literally, his note is, I freaked out and I left society. Like, he saw all the different paths in front of him and he said, what if I choose a self-destructive one? Like, and I, so that's something that, like, I don't think we got too into last week, but, like, my worst moments where I've been really depressed or or sad or just like trying to understand like, yeah, all my past available to me. Like, where is it? You know, like I said, it happened in, in high school. It happened in, uh, for a little bit in college too. And, uh, and a little bit after like another intense breakup after that, we were together for a few years in like my mid twenties, I feel like my tendency leans towards not like suicidal, but like self-destructive, like, like I'm going to go and stay up too late and I'm going to have too many drinks and I'm going to like just not care really what happens next and like destabilize you know. your own existence. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the, we talked the, about this during Annihil- the Annihilation episode actually. Yeah. I mean it's – it's it, – it is – it so like from that perspective, I think that's essentially what's happened. Like he saw – a path forward. There was a girl he loved. People were talking about whether he was going to, you know, obviously was a good student and a popular person. When he comes back to the high school reunion, people he hasn't seen in 10 years, everyone knows his name. Most people tend to like him or gravitate towards him in a way that like, doesn't mean he was friends with them all, but like he clearly had um, good relationships in high school. His teachers think, you know, he won, the one teacher he runs into thinks highly of him. And that teacher notes that we were expecting Princeton or Harvard or really great things and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he had that kind of moment of like, fuck, I'm about to be an adult and there's all these expectations of me. Um, and, you know, he he does something self-destructive where he – and literally then to justify his actions and his career, 
like has a mantra that he creates f- that allows him to be emotionally distant from humanity as a whole. And so like, you know, he, some of that, some of those like pining feelings for him is really just like, it's definitely sad is hundred percent the right word, but it is him going, Oh, now that I've let this back in a little bit and I've let this see, cause he didn't want to go back to his reunion. I've let this kind of grow. Like it's like a fucking break in a dam, right? It starts out as a little hole. He's like reconnecting to humanity, the emotions of humanity and starting to see value in life and existing beyond just money and doing all these things. And it starts like it's a dam that just, you know, breaks very quickly as it starts getting punctured. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good way of putting it. Like he goes from someone who seems very um, in control. And then as you, you see that a lot of that is just like those the exterior control of his self and his, his yeah. career is starting to crumble as even the concept of returning to his past is popping in. We don't actually get to see him be that competent as a hitman, which is kind of maybe an issue with the movie. I don't know. I mean, um, the end scene he takes. I mean, he's so good in that end scene. But that's, yeah, but that's part of the growth arc, which is that at the... Now he's fighting for something. We know in the background that he's been a very good, competent hitman. And then the first hit that we see him do, he is... The the cracks are forming because of the... um, the Also, he had the the Boutros situation right before the first hit that we saw, too. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. with the dead dog. Yeah. Um, But anyways... uh, the point is that the point is that like the cracks were underneath there the entire time they just spackled over them. Yeah, and um, the uh, the, we're getting to see him kind of have this breakdown. And one is one thing that's so great about this movie, and we're going to talk about it in just a second, is we get to see John Cusack do something that I don't think he had done really thus far, um, and we we got to see him um, play a you know a um, a man of action, a more physical character type. Yeah. Um, he doesn't, he only gets to do one scene of kickboxing or, you know, of martial arts. Um, and, but he, uh, he wanted to be a kickboxer and say anything. Yeah. You know, he, you know, he's like a, he is a kickboxer. Yeah. Professional level, level, uh, kickboxer. Do you know who the guy he kills? The like, uh, Basque separatist guy is. Uh, no, I actually, I meant to look it up because I'm like, I've never, I, I've never seen this guy in anything. Come to um, think of it. John Cusack trained under Benny Erkadez. Uh, Benny Erkadez. And oh. he plays oh. the, the oh. hitman that comes after him in two scenes in this movie. And he ends yeah. up killing with the pen. Yeah. Um, so he ends up killing his own mentor and he does a martial arts scene against his own mentor, yeah. um, which I think is, is kind of funny. It's something I didn't know. But like we get to see John Cusack be a physical, you know, action guy. When did also, Con Air come out? I, th- I think it's the same year, right? 1996. Yeah, but he's mostly just chasing and running. He's not really like. That's pretty physical if you ask me, Peter. Uh, but he's not doing these like. These, like, lay down on the floor, hide behind a thing, kind of, you know, uh, this type of physicality. He's not, like, beating the shit out of, like, multiple people. Gross Point Blade um, did come out two months earlier, so. Yeah. Okay. So, he, and then we also get to see a version of John Cusack that we're very familiar with and we love to see, which is just sort of this, like, neurotic, like, things are starting to break, but he's trying to hold them together. Yep. It's just that the, the, the mechanisms that he's using to hold himself together are, um... 
instinctual violence <laughs> like literally there's a scene at yeah. the um at the at the reunion where a guy walks up to him too fast and he thinks he's being attacked <laughs> yeah. so he like twists his arm I know. and the other guy thinks he's like wrestling or whatever like people just keep coming with plausible deniable reasons why this guy would so clearly have be i, be I know trained at it's, this shit. it's so good it's like yeah, you do. He all the different like moving around in seats and all the different like it is just all instinct. And he's like, "It's not me." Like, and so I literally the 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 CIA program my brain or whatever yeah. like, the special program that I did. Yeah, and he and and the point is that he's instead of covering up with um you know throwing music at people or um covering up by you know having these very specific sort of relatable meltdowns like in say anything or yeah. in high fidelity. He's covering up this mechanism by just returning to this, like, murder programming. And, and his murder um, box. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's I think that's a, a, a tremendously good idea for a rom-com. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's great. Really quickly, though, before we get into it, the director we talked about, George Armitage, really hasn't done that much. He was heavily involved in the script here. He was hired as a director, but was heavily involved in the scripting. Um, and he had made the movie Miami Blues. Have you seen Miami Blues? No. Oh, it's really good, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a it's like a a, a rough kind of early two thousand early nineties like a crime crime kind of movie, right? Yeah, it's 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 a lot like this. It is a um, it's like uh, raising Arizona type R rated like bleak dark comedy. Um, I think it doesn't work as well for me as this movie. I know some people would say, well, Miami Blues is the better version, is because a it's a little bleak and also like so. Uh, spoiler alerts for Miami Blues. Uh, uh, Alec Baldwin is the main person, and he is not lovable. <laughs> I don't know if you know that about Alec Baldwin. Uh, just as a general actor, he's rarely a lovable presence. And so even though you understand why um, there's good romantic chemistry between Alec Baldwin and Jennifer Jason Lee, Alec Baldwin dies in that movie, and a lot of people were like, Oh, that's terrible. I was really invested in their relationship. And I remember when I saw it, I was like, okay, yeah, but he's kind of an out. Like, like he's not <laughs> lovable, but he is a murderer in that movie. And I do think this movie's, like, genius is casting John Cusack, who is, like, almost impossible not to find somewhat lovable in my estimation. And so it really does do it, like, fucking, like, uh, Pavlovian dogs over your mind that he's a brutal killer. Like in Miami Blues, it was always like, yeah, I can see why Jennifer Jason Lee is attracted to this and they have good romantic chemistry and you can see why they're in love, but he's a cold-blooded killer. Like he's still a bad guy. It is very easy to forget that John Cusack is a bad guy in this movie. <laughs> like very, very easy. <laughs> and, and John Cusack has way more of a personality that would make him a better... All right, more of a um, a face and a personality that make him a better hitman, because he does just kind of look like a guy, whereas like Alec Baldwin doesn't blend into a crowd at all. I don't think he's a hitman. He's like a, a bank robber or something in that movie. But, but you know, what, you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. uh, the like the, the the dynamic of of who John Cusack is as a person is like, and the fact that his last name is literally blank, I think allows him to yeah. blend in as a hitman a little bit better than some of these uh, some of these actors can. Like the fact that John Cusack is so relatable would actually make him a better hitman. Oh yeah, uh, and then George Armitage only did one other. He only did like three main movies really. 
He did um, some TV movies in like the 70s and yeah. stuff, but yeah. We did the big bounce, the Elmer Leonard novel that everyone thinks is terrible. So I never made another movie. Yeah. And then all right. Bounced out of Hollywood. A big bounce. Uh, all right, Peter, are you ready to talk more about Rose Pointe Blanque? Peter, Gross Point Blank, starts with an ironic use of a song. Starts with, it's going to be a bright, 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 sunshiny day. day. And it's going to be a bright, sunshiny day because that's a happy song. This movie's going to start with a murder. Uh, This movie's got a few tricks up its sleeves. Uh, Yeah. Uh, John Cusack, loading up a sniper rifle. There's a guy. Did you... Did you catch the reference to the uh, – did it evoke a little bit the newspaper boy or no? A little bit. A little bit. No. Not enough to make me – not enough to, to, to charm me or make me uh, go. Feel anything oh. or care. Oh. Oh. Instead, I just went, I recognize this reference. <laughs> uh, he uh, – there's – Have they confirmed that's intentional? I thought so, yeah. Mm. Um. But he uh, he shoots the newspaper boy, uh, the delivery boy, who's like seems to be going after these three like mob bosses or something like that. Uh, and he shoots him just in a way that shows his gun so that the other mob bosses shoot him to death. So that who, clearly this guy was hired to kill these mob bosses and the job – because we find out that his jobs have very specific circumstances in most cases. That's why you hire him to make it look like an accident. Um but after they shoot this delivery boy to death, all of a sudden Dan Aykroyd emerges as a hotel bellhop and hilariously uh, puts about 8,000 rounds of bullets into the three mob bosses uh, while they're lying dead on the ground and then throws his guns and walks away. And John Cusack is clearly upset about that because they double booked the job. So he was hired to protect them, uh, the mob bosses, and obviously Dan Aykroyd was hired to kill them. Let's pause for a second. This is by far my favorite Dan Aykroyd performance outside of Ghostbusters. He is so good in this. So, like, Dan Aykroyd, I think it's it's like between this and, like, Sneakers or something. Um, I'd have to see Sneakers again. Yeah, I saw, I saw uh, Sneakers once. I don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Sneakers is a good movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Um, it's an underrated movie. Um, but uh, I was going to say, oh. Sneakers is one of those movies also that, like, you're like, dad tells you it was a good movie, and then yeah. you're like, hmm, I don't know. And then you watch it, and you're like, dad was right. Um, but, uh... Old people do he is a he, Dan Aykroyd is playing up his age a little bit here. So, Dan Aykroyd is a hitman who's been in the, the game longer than, than Martin. This uh, movie Martin reminded me a lot like. of Barry. I don't know if Barry has any direct influence from it, but the Steve... I have a whole... I don't have a lot of notes, but I have a whole section about how this is... This reminds me of Barry. I'll I'll get there in a sec, but, like, it very much reminds me of Barry in in the Stephen Stephen Root Root and Bill Bill Hader Hader thing. Yeah, 100%. But how Stephen Root is trying to get Bill Hader to follow a strict paradigm, and Bill Hader actually, like, part of the reason he likes being a hitman is because of, like, the isolation and, like, being able to do things on his own. Yeah. Um... But Dan Aykroyd is an older guy. It's not that he's not as viable anymore, but he is, like, sloppier. 
Yeah. Um, he literally just and, emerges and shoots everyone in broad daylight and throws his guns and walks away. Yeah. And um, he is someone who Martin doesn't have a lot of professional respect for, but he is a little bit afraid of because he's like so just like unhinged and nuts. And uh, he has this idea um, that he has been in the game so long. He's just like, let's corporatize this. Let's. Yeah. He keeps calling it a union, but what he's really referring to is like, let's basically make a John Wick organization. Like, yeah, like let's we only, you know, one person assigned for a contract for a job. We're not killing each other. We can bid higher because we have control about for who yeah. um, comes we, we in. Can't, we can't. No one can undercut each other. Yeah, it's not, union, it's, it's not a union. It's not a union. It's a monopoly. But he uses the term scabs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's like, we kill scabs, and he's and they have this amazing roadside conversation where they're basically yeah. both like, "What the fuck, dude?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, they have this amazing. There's two. There's three scenes with. Anytime uh, they talk, it's a highlight of the movie. Like the it's, I, I, it's, the the diner breakfast conversation is slightly ahead of it. Um, because you understand their relationship more, I feel like, and so they're their relationship has progressed more at that point. Yeah, at this yeah. point, they're still playing nice, they're and I really nice. love, I really love the dynamic of this scene, like more than uh, pretty much any scene in the movie, where it's manic. They're yeah. like, they're 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 simultaneously saying two things at the same time. They're saying, um, "Hey, I really want to work with you," and you know, like let's keep our professionalism up. And then the flip side, they're saying, "Hey." If this doesn't go exactly the way that I want it, I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah, yeah. And they're doing it with a smile and they're doing it while they're like both. They're both keep touching their jacket whenever the conversation yeah. starts to turn. Yeah. And it's not in a slow, like French thriller kind of way. No. It's done as broad comedy yeah. where it's like Dan Aykroyd either wants Martin in the fold and like as an apprentice and makes less money than him or he wants him in the ground. He doesn't want literally anything. Which is, which is why the Barry thing, like, man, if I, I, I have to look up if Bill Hader ever mentioned Gross Point Blank as an influence because that thing of like, if I can't have you as an apprentice and you don't look up to me, I'd rather see you dead is like, that's like Stephen Root, Bill Hader's relationship yeah. and Barry too. Um, I, I, I was thinking about hey, while we're here, I was thinking about Barry a lot when I was watching this, not just because it's like a hitman comedy that also goes dark at times. Uh, Barry's way darker than this movie ever gets. I mean, this movie, Barry is almost like, hey, it's kind of cute that they fell in love and ended up together at the end. Uh, he's a murderous hitman. What if I show what that's like from a more grounded perception of like what would happen if, if hopefully – even not a great character or a great person see, finds out that her boyfriend is murdering people in cold yeah. blood. This is ultimately, this is ultimately, gross point blank, is a broad, approachable comedy. Mm -hmm. And so it will, it will skirt next to reality at times to build drama, but it never goes that deep because it knows what audience, the audience wants, right? And it wants yeah. to deliver what the audience wants. Uh, Barry is a show that starts off as a comedy where people sometimes get shot and then it gradually transcends into this like like deep psychological drama about a man's entire world collapsing because he can't face his own feelings <laughs> like um, and it reminds me very much of a concept you and I talk about a lot which is like unofficial remakes where like um, there's a lot of like unofficial art house remakes out there where it feels like it's like, okay, they took the concept of something trashy 
which I'm not saying this movie's trashy, but you know what I mean. Something broad, mainstream, or trashy. Um, something with a lowest common denominator kind of in mind. And then uh, made it into like an art housey thing. Yeah. And like, like we, not, we need to talk about Kevin's, I think is a really great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We need to talk about Kevin is, is, is a like art housey remake of a lot of like, <laughs> like um, the uh, like, guy kills a bunch of people in a school or um, a person suspects that their their family close family member is a serial killer which is like dotted like yeah like there's hundreds of movies in the 80s like that right um i talk a lot about how under the skin feels very much oh, like yeah, species. It's, an, it's an art house remake of species yeah like they're like i love this idea I don't like that you just made it an exploitational sex horror movie. <laughs> like let's yeah. let, let's let's make it let's make the exploitation part of the story and part of the theming and like all of that. Um, and this is this is a movie that I feel like d- ties directly into Barry with that, which is like if you want a pleasant like I may watch this movie again in the next week because I didn't get to watch it with Molly, and I'm sure Molly would love this movie. Yeah, that oh, kind yeah. of thing. However, Molly and I when we're done with Barry. Um, We'll probably never watch the show again because the season three and four are very hard to watch. Oh my god, four uh, is so bleak. We've been we've yeah. been saving the next episode. I'm like, uh, it is. It's it's a tough watch. Yeah, we're in the middle of a lot of uh, tough watches that are all very good, but Barry is the one that I'm like really putting off. Like I'm several yeah. episodes behind. Um, but that's the point, right? The gross point blank. The choices that they make in terms of 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 killing um, are all kind of made with. Um, Getting to to a satisfying and happy journey for Martin in mind the whole time, and so so much of the movie, I don't feel this way in real life. We talked about this a lot in Repo Man, a couple other movies. This is a movie that thematically exists in a universe where human life is not as valuable as it is in our universe. And People like, get away with a lot of killing. Like, even... Like, it's just not taken seriously. Like, the cops don't show up in this movie. A gas station blows out. There's shootouts in the middle of the street in a su- small Detroit suburb. Police don't show up. No one's like, hey, someone fuck it. The Ultimart exploded. And, like, people are dead. Like, where you need people to ca- care about a murder, people care about a murder... But that fundamentally, this is from the perspective of a universe where human life is less valuable. And I think that was like Repo Man does this. There's a lot of movies that do this. I mean, in some ways, like when you're – when a very like simplistic definition of, of dark and black humor is like humor where you can kill people and it's not – it can be funny, right? And I like – I obviously – I think one of the things – and I'm not trying to over-explain or over-justify or something like that. But like part of finding this stuff funny is you kind of have to get on the movie's mindset that like, yes, obviously I wouldn't laugh at this stuff in real life. This would be horrific. Barry's a good example of a show that takes a similar concept and makes it horrific, makes the murdering horrific. But if you're going to enjoy this movie, you also just have to accept, like, lives are not as valuable in this movie universe as they are in, in reality. And there's something <coughs> something a little cynical about the fact that this is, like, 
It's like a rom-com that you could take your husband to. Um, there's something a little cynical there, but um, it ends up being rather artful at times. Yeah. That, that like the entire ethos of the movie, it's not just like, oh, we're going to have some shootouts, but it's not going to distract from the romance. It's, it's, it's actually rather artful that like this movie is an extension of Martin's worldview. And in Martin's worldview, yeah. I kill people in such a way that it doesn't matter that, what the cops think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, the cops don't show up. It's an extension of Martin's worldview. The movie yep. is takes place in Martin's head. Like we bar- we barely see anything outside of Martin's worldview except for like some cops that end up be- being rather ineffectual to the plot. Um, Where do we see cops ever? The uh, uh, Hank Azaria and the other guy. Oh, the, the FBI agents. I meant like the day to day like police that would be investigating a uh, gas station blowing up. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, are FBI agents not cops to you? I mean, all I feds, like- all feds are cops, Aaron. I mean, I dislike them as much as cops. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, but that's that's it, it, yeah. it, um, the zany that zany sort of like lightness of tone is yeah. like is is not something that they just do because like it would be it would make if the husbands are getting bored. Don't worry, someone's gonna get shot in two minutes. Like that kind of bullshit. Yeah, like this means war is like a an example of that. Like a terrible. I, movie I never that, saw like, that. A terrible movie that occasionally has action sequences in it. Like, um, what's a good a good example of this is uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. That, that I mean, that is a really good movie. It's a good movie. I, I don't think it's as good as this, but it, it, it's like sure, your wife's gonna go. She's gonna have some thoughts about Brad Pitt, but while, she, while she's touching herself and watching Brad Pitt, you can be touching yourself right back. <laughs> <laughs> Angelina Jolie. It's gonna be good. Uh, my uh, movie pitch man only uh, ascribes to cis heteronormative couples, but <laughs> we gotta make mass mutual masturbatory fantasy on on the big yeah. screen for you this week, and, and a little something for daddy. Yeah, All right, a little, little something for daddy. Yeah, guns specifically. A lot <laughs> of something for daddy in that movie. Um, yeah. So uh, the other, we also meet the other character who's fantastic, like one of the best performances. So funny in every scene. The 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 entire, I could say that about the entire cast. Like Dan Acker is great. Joan Cusack, unsurprisingly, is amazing as his um, assistant and manager, who like is so funny, being like a almost a. A tur- like a, a legal assistant or something like that with the same like fuck off energy and then like there's a great scene later on where she's like I told you to get that ammunition you get it here no I don't have that's bullshit you fi- fucking fix this and then is like talking to her sister about like how to make a soup base like it's so good she's so high energy it's it's great um, and I think it's it's funny that they don't do the her she doesn't yell at her sister about nine millimeter rounds whatever like they don't do that bit because she is competent at her job she's just weird yeah she's just weird and competent and and a real person Um, better combo than the like like this ditzy secretary like i've seen that a million times it's so much fun to see joan cusack be cutthroat and cruel and then flip around and be like the carrots and the onions, they're just a base. It's just a stock to get the, yeah. the soup going. The flavor's going to come later. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, um, So he has another job to do where he's supposed to put poison down 
um, someone's throat and he fucks it up. Like he's he drills a hole in a hotel room, makes it look like an accident, makes it look like a heart attack. He Straight moves, out of you only live twice. Yeah, he he moves in his sleep. The poison goes on his mouth. He has to run down the stairs and shoot him a couple times. And the people that that hired him are mad. They said you're supposed to look like an accident. You have to make amends. Here's here's uh, here's a you have to go to. Uh, uh, Detroit to kill this this guy who's about to talk to the feds and be a stoolie and sing. Um, and look at this. Earlier, she's like, you have your reunion coming up. We got a letter. You should go. I find it interesting to, to, that you came from somewhere, she says. Um, and that's fascinating for me that you would go back and reconnect with friends that you used to have, Mr. Weird Boss Hitman, who like doesn't talk much and is secretive. And she's like, it's, it's meant to be. You have to go you, you will get killed if you don't do this job, is what she implies. And this job is the same weekend, the same time as your high school reunion. You have to go back. Um, and then we see, again, in one of the other – yeah. Um, in one of the other funniest performances – and, like, <clears throat> I think if I would have picked the first time I saw this movie with the funniest performance, I would have said Alan Arkin. He killed me. I never. I don't think I'd ever seen an Alan Arkin movie. I was like 15 when this movie came out. Um, he he's so effortlessly funny in everything. We talk a lot about him in Santa Claus Three. <laughs> but yeah, he, how miserable that script is. He's just like every fucking line that he delivers. The the less effort, the better in that movie. Yeah, like <laughs> he is a psychologist who um, you kind of cut to Martin Blank talking about. Um, I'm, things aren't going well at work. Do you think I should go to this reunion? There's this girl that's going to be there. I haven't stopped thinking about her. I left her, uh, right before prom. And for a second, you think he's doing a Ferris Bueller thing where he's talking to the camera, which is funny because a couple movies later, that's what he does in High Fidelity. And it cuts to his psychologist who's like not really paying attention. And John Cusack calls him out on it. A psychologist played by Alan Arkin. And he's like, I told you you're not I'm not you're you're not my patient anymore. You told me what you do for a living. Um and I don't want to work with you anymore and you keep coming here and making all these veiled threats on my life if you were to quit. So I don't know how to give you advice. I don't know how to help you. That's a toughie for me, Martin. That's a toughie for me. Um and he is just like uh he's John Cusack's so funny cuz he's like I think you should be more committed to the process. Like he's giving psychologist speech back to him. He's like, I'm very committed. He read to the, the guy's books. books. He read the guy's books, and he's like, <laughs> and he's like, they were ghostwritten. <laughs> um, he's like, well, just can you just tell me like what I should do? Just tell me what to do. He's like, sure, go. Don't kill anyone. I'll see how it works for you. And 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 so that kind of sets up like, okay, this is his opportunity to go. And he's also has this thing about like. He's he's fucked up at his like his last three jobs haven't gone well. We'll find out the job that occurred off screen that that Dan Aykroyd references in their first meeting by barking is that he was sent to kill these bozos, these like attorneys. The attorneys were drunk and had borrowed this dog from this like drug dealer or someone. Uh, And they were uh, taking like game and strapping sticks of dynamite and throwing the the, the the birds out and the dog that they had borrowed was a retriever and ran off to go get one of the birds that they had thrown or were fucking with the, with the dynamite and blew up. Then he has the job we see at the beginning of the movie where he does kill the guy, but everyone's pissed because he was supposed to save the lives of these mob bosses and they get killed immediately by Grocer. 
And then now he fucked up this other thing. So he's he's like and and one of the implications is <laughs> one of the implications is that he's getting worse at his job because he's just not into it anymore. Um he doesn't really like doing it. He start the concept of morality is starting to sneak back into his life. And so th- with the blessing of Alan Arkin, he's like I'm going to go and I don't know if I'm going to do this job. Like he is not committed to it. He one of the big plot twists in this movie is that he does not open the envelope um until the very end of the movie because he is not sure if he wants to actually kill anyone again. But he does the thing that a lot of people do, which is half measures, right? So it's not that he doesn't he doesn't bring guns with. It's not that he doesn't he throws the envelope in the trash. He goes to the reunion and he's like, maybe I'll he's like, I'll go to the reunion if you're going to the reunion. And then he tries to reconnect with her. Like, we'll get there in a second. But like, he's kind of half committing to all of this. And the fact which, that which like she a- calls him out on, which I think is really good. The scene where we'll get there where she confronts him, where she's like, oh, I get it. I'm just a big part of your maybe you can have redemption arc if you choose me over this other thing. And you don't get to make that choice, right? Like, so, but you're 100% right. Like, he's not like, I'm not going to do it. He's like, I don't, let's see how this other thing pans out before I decide to kill this person. And as a matter of fact, when he does decide that that other thing, i.e. being with Debbie doesn't pan out, he opens the envelope with the intent to kill the person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, like that is him. That is him committing to the bit, and it ends up being, uh, you know, kind of the the way dumb, dumb fucking luck. Yeah, dumb fucking luck. So, um, he decides I'm going back. First, he yep. swings by the office, and it's it's very funny. Joan Cusack is like, "What are you doing here?" Like, it seems yeah. like he never actually goes to the office. Like, the, it's a placeholding office. Yeah, yeah. It's her office, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. She's like, this is where I go to work every day. Like, yeah. you work in the she, field. Yeah, but they get to have like one conversation that's not on the phone, right? Yeah. Um, and he, uh, she basically stresses, you know, that like this is this is yeah. gonna happen. This is this is the rules of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes to Gross he Point. Goes to Gross Point, which is an actual Detroit suburb. Uh, they shot all of this in California. Uh, oh really? Because they do yeah. a good job with some of the overpass, uh, like those kind of like they shoot a lake, sh- like a Lakeshore Drive kind of thing. Yeah, because um, the houses they do a really good job. Because like if you've ever been to like Detroit suburbs, like Dearborn mm-hmm. and stuff like that, they have like you know. I'm saying to our audience, not to you, Peter. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I'm agree. I'm nodding in yeah. agreement. Um, they have all those like giant brick homes, like with spaced out. They do they do a few overshots of him driving there. That is clearly detroit and it does the movie weirdly enough it does feel like midwest in yeah. the spring summer um yeah. like very beautiful very sunny like it, it's you yeah. know it's not detroit in the dead of dead of winter no. um that'd be more of like an ice harvest kind of thing uh-huh. another good movie um but uh they shot almost all of this there's some establishing shots shot there but like yeah. apparently like the high school was like no you can't shoot oh uh, yeah this- you can't shoot the reunion in our high school because there's like sh- drinking and stuff in it, and like, and, and he's do- killing. You can't kill people on the stairs. Yeah, they use an abandoned high school in California, right? Yeah, yeah. And they, um, which is so funny because you feel like they would just like 
wait until school's out and, and take out the actual school and the school would be happy, but like they specifically didn't want any of that. Yeah, they didn't want like, oh, here's the scene where someone kills someone in the hallway. Yeah, yeah. And this wasn't this was the this was this was before Columbine, but not much more before Columbine. A year before. Almost yeah. exactly a year before, yeah. Yeah. Um, when uh, absolutely schools are like, no, we don't want anybody picturing anybody being murdered in our school. Well, also, I think that was the death. Like, it was the death for, pardon the not the whatever pun, of like the bleak, like, killing people can be funny movies. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I do think that was the end of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. We're, the movies after after Columbine uh, changed. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, 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 yeah. Um, and then after 9-11, obviously, like, even more so. But it's something we've talked about. In this oh, show. yeah. They, well, they, I mean, literally, there was a, a, a comedy about terrorists starring Tim Allen <laughs> that was supposed to come out to theaters the week after 9-11. They had to delay. Like, that's how, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't think you got a comedy about that till Four Lions. And that was a British movie, too. Yeah. Which yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Whatever. Four lines. Um, but yeah, but yeah. So uh, it's it, it does feel though like a affluent Midwest suburb. Oh yeah. Um, which is what the actual town is. Um, he apparently he's from a different uh, different town. Um, in in uh, Michigan, but he, his was more working class. <laughs> and yeah. So he, but he, and he was like, well, I think like the the, the like an affluent suburb, and also I get yeah. to make the pun, gross point blank. Yeah. Like it, it made more sense. Um, so he ran with that. And then that guy's script, the original the, writer's the writer, script, Steve, Steve Pink, I think. Yeah. His script got partially rewritten with John Cusack. And then the director came in, uh, Armitage came in and he was like, this is, it's like 130 page, <laughs> yeah. 150 page, uh, comedy script. Yeah. Um, and he apparently, they, they beat it down to 102, but also they did a bunch of improv, which inserted some of the old lines. And, and so, yeah, I imagine this was movie was kind of like a, a bear to edit. Which feels like it because so much of the John Cusack lines feel like John Cusack saying them. And so many of the Dan Aykroyd lines feels like Dan Aykroyd saying them, like in a Saturday Night Live character. A lot of the scenes where the there's a simple concept. These two like each other. And there's a drunk person interrupting their conversation. Um, these two hate each other, but they have to keep up some sort of business appearances because, like, they really don't want to murder each other in the middle of this town. All of that kind of stuff has a little bit of good improv energy where it's like, here's your guidelines. Let's get let's get where we need to go. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're right. Like, John, there's moments where John Cusack and Dan Aykroyd are, yeah, like, acting more like... You know, Dan Aykroyd on SNL where he's like goofing around and, and, and John Cusack is like bringing in more of his own sort of like his own sort of like um, manic energy um, at times. Yeah. So he drives in town and immediately there's a car following him. Uh, and that car is uh, Hank Azaria and K. Todd Freeman as uh, two FBI agents uh, who are on the domestic uh, terrorism watch. Uh, to stop like militia groups and assassins from committing acts of terrorism, which is murdering people. But they're dirty FBI agents. You find out later that Grossman has – they're kind of working for Grossman, kind of not. They have some sort of arrangement where he's just saying, hey – so Grossman's – oh, we forgot to say Gro – not Grossman, Grosser. And also, he was originally hired to kill this guy, this Michigan contract. 
And then when the basically John Cusack's uh, Martin Blank had to do it for free for his hotel room fuck up, they canceled the contract for Grocer, which is also thinking that like, you know, he wanted John Cusack to join his union. And this is exactly why. We just talked about that we're undercutting each other and we're fucking each other out of jobs. And like, again, he wants to control it, as you mentioned, because obviously John Cusack's the better, sexier assassin. But this is exactly what he was worried about. So he's going to he's going town to essentially solidify his union proposal and kill John Cusack. And the way he's doing that is he set him up by tipping off these dirty uh, domestic terrorist uh, uh, agents that he's going to kill this guy. So the thing, their thing is that like, we can't just go kill him. We are the good guys in this situation. Uh, Hank Azaria especially is very funny, uh, but they both are. And once we catch him in the act of killing someone, once he's killed his target, then we can kill him because now he's done his domestic terrorist thing. Um, So they're very much like cops in that of like, you say, Hey, my wife is, my husband is threatening to kill me. Um, they can't do anything until he actually kills you, I believe, is the way it works, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's sort of a cute tease about how, like, it's sort of cops don't prevent crimes. Yeah. (laughs) Like, at all. (laughs) And, like, they're basically, like, they're dirty cops in that, like, they're gonna get paid by grocer to basically just perform the sort of corrupt shit that cops always do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, John Cusack's a a good hitman. He immediately notices he has a tail. And then, um, he, the first place he drives by, so Debbie, played by Minnie Driver in a adorable, um, no, uh, kind of a, I almost think it's a I don't know if it's a Michigan accent. It very much feels like a Boston accent a little bit, but um, uh, maybe it's a little bit of a Midwest. A, it's it's not accent. a refined accent, and it's also not a West Coast accent, right? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be sort of like a small town kind of like. I mean, the, the girl you fall in love with's accent. I didn't know that this wasn't her voice, though. So it wasn't until I I found out that she had an English accent, like Saw Good Will Hunting, that I'm like, oh, that, like so she she. When I first watched this, I wasn't like, this person is doing an accent. But she does a very specific accent that that sounds like the character would sound. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It it's it sounds like a specific a specific sort of accent. I don't know if it specifically sounds like a Michigan accent. It doesn't quite have the vowels there, but it does sound like you know, sort of like a small town. It's not. It's not this refined, you know, in, a sort of English accent like a, a, you know, you went to prep school kind of um, and learned diction kind of thing. Um, she's adorable in this movie. I have not. I. I don't think I've seen a lot of Minnie Driver movies, mostly because her career was kind of yanked out from underneath her. Um, yeah, I mean, this Goodwill Hunting. Um, I feel like there was a TV show I tried watching that she was on. She's making a million small, really great choices in this movie that, um... Oh, I did see Return that, to Me. Yeah. That's the one where David Duchovny has a baboon heart. <laughs> David Duchovny had an interesting post, uh, post-X-Files career in that, like, some things actually did do well. Yeah. It's just that they're not worth watching. Like, nobody should watch Californication. Uh, I watched the first two seasons, and even I gave up. 
Yeah, that was in a specific media landscape where people wanted shit like that. Um, but she is making a million small choices. This is she is not an autopilot the way that uh, a lot of like rom- a lot of like people do rom coms because they're like this will be an easy thing, right? Like I can show up, I smile at a handsome guy, I go you know like laugh while I'm eating a salad, whatever. Um, and like that's like this was the era when rom coms got real fucking lazy. Um was like right right around here like in the next two years rom-coms are going to start to transition into this sort of death spiral um where uh they're just kind of emulating each other it starts eating its own tail um in a way that like is uh pretty sad right because like we deserve to have movies that are targeting women especially women that aren't 15 um and uh she's making a million small choices that are just so charming where you can see her being neurotic and then trying to hide that neuroses to like uh show like a bit of strength and be like i'm an adult ass woman i can i can handle this situation and then sort of get sucked back into the charm and like let herself kind of be taken over and then be like i'm not gonna make this that fucking easy for you like you ran away 10 years ago and you like messed up my whole life at that point like she's She's doing this amazing sort of cycle of feelings where like you can see it all, but it's not um it's 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 not campy in a rom-com way. It's actually very believable. It's just that the cycles are happening faster than they do in real life. Like the fact that they make out in 10 seconds and like they don't have like a first kiss in the third act or whatever is like them subverting that. But like that's just sort of the movie condensing time because the movie's going so fast. She's going through these cycles in a way that's, like, a little fast, but it's in a way that's, like, the, the speed of it is funny. Yeah, and she makes all these wonderful choices that also, like, let you know that she is a, like, self-possessed fun person. Like, yeah. I, I love the little choice to run to the door as fast as she can when someone knocks on her door at her parents' house that she's staying in. Um, like a little kid would run excitedly to the door because that feels like it's for no one but herself because she thinks it's funny. And like, there's a lot of that energy where like she is the way she talks to people on the radio. Like she is every bit. I feel like she (coughs) has the characterization that typically because of like, uh, people need to fit in like these gender boxes, especially in nineties Hollywood. I think she has like the character that men are usually in these romantic comedies where like, I'm going to say something insulting to you in a very clever way that you both find charming, or I know is going to go over your head that, that like that type of like tone that she does consistently um, is such a like, the cool dude in the romantic comedy like he's kind of being a dick to his the girl and other people around but oh he's kind of sweet and charming and like it you know that's such a boorish annoying trope for men in movies and a man in real life for that matter um but she like giving that to her it's so good and she's so good doing it too like she is like clearly having a great time entertaining herself um and, like, one thing I think this movie would work less is if, like, she, again, fell head over heels in love in a way that removed her agency and also just, like, understanding of the situation. Like, look, I was in love with this guy 10 years ago. He disappeared. 
I'm willing to put my heart to this point with him because I still have a lot of attraction and interest and I'm enjoying myself around him, which is very evident in their scenes. But like, I'm not betting the farm on my happiness with this guy. Like, and even though like she, she really seems to be like, understand who this person is and the stakes and isn't like, you know, writing soliloquies in her bed about how wonderful my man who came back into my life is. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of, of putting it. She's not miserableist and she doesn't build her whole life around him, but she is like excited about the idea of yeah. if not reconnecting with him, giving him some shit or processing all of this. And this is like a movie that like is weird because like it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. I understand that that's sort of just like it's a rule of thumb kind of thing. Um, and... Uh, it's a rule of thumb thing. It's not obviously like the, your movie is a misogynistic movie. It doesn't pass the Bechdel test, but it is usually a good indicator whether or not you have fully formed women characters, right? And she's fully formed in that, like, she defends herself to him in a way that's not cartoonish. She defends her, herself to herself in a way that's not cartoonish. She what she's she what she's asking for him is not high maintenance. Um, over-demanding woman stereotype bullshit. What she's asking of him is pretty basic. Are you in? Are you out? Like, all I'm asking... And she's not asking, like, do you want to get married tomorrow? She's saying, are you in or out? Like, hey, do you want to explore this? Or are you just flying through town to hurt me again? <laughs> like, and it's a pretty fair... It's a pretty fair question. And she's, like, kind of exploring times where she's like, you know, maybe this is just a brief fling. And, and she kind of is exploring times where she's like, you know, like, what I loved about him then, I, I loved about him, and the moment that he hurt me was a out-of-the-blue thing. He just disappeared. He didn't, like, we, we had a fully-fledged, happy relationship, and he just freaked out, left town, joined the army, joined the CIA, now I kill people. Uh, yes. Also, I just sent you a link, because technically this movie does pass, though. Michael does. Who does she talk to that's a woman? Well, she doesn't... Did you know there's other women that exist in this movie, right? Oh, uh, are there? Yeah, Joan Cusack talking to, for say, her, her friend. Phone? I mean, that technically counts. They're talking about something that's not a man. There's three other examples. There's two other examples. I know. You, uh, I mean, it, it's it's a pass fail, so it only needs to pass once. But it does yeah. pass at three times. There's three examples that would count according to the website. I just look because I'm like, hold on, like there's I... definitely women talking that aren't just. I don't know, man. Does it count if they're off screen and aren't a character? <laughs> According to Beckeltest.com, yes. Uh, the point is that there's like multiple women. Also, the nurse and his mom have a conversation. Fun. The nurse and his mom have a conversation was one of the things that lists. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That, sure. I, I didn't make Whatever. the test. I'm not making the, the judgment. Is, I'm just reporting the results, Peter. And, and, and do and your own course. research. Yeah, uh, I think you called Arizona too early. Um, no, um, <laughs> but uh, no. My my point is this: is is just that like this is a movie that she does not have a sub, there's not a substantial network of strong women characters. Agreed. There there are about a million um, fucked up weird little gremlin men in this movie, <laughs> including our lead character, who who like are just like. I don't know, killing? That's not that important. <laughs> or like, I don't know. You want to go do cocaine in the bathroom? I, I'm extremely depressed. Like, there's there's a million little. It is funny that like around. all of the men at the reunion are little weird gremlin men. Like all of they them. are every all single one. 
and most of the women are fine. Minus Dharma from Dharma and Greg. She is she is on some cosmic horror bullshit for about 20 seconds. Yeah. She's like talking about how like her body disassociated with herself yeah. and she passed through an ethereal plane and then they're like, what's happening? And then they both are like, you died and came back and she's like, yeah, yeah I guess I died and came back. Yeah. Uh, very, a very funny scene. But She got um, typecast as a crazy hippie. I know. I Who didn't watch Dharma and Greg? That's up there with like Seinfeld and News Radio. It's the best sitcoms <laughs> in the nineties. Um, I think I saw an episode. Um, say, say, say psych. Say psych. <laughs> say psych. Uh, what if a guy who is a, to be clear, a normal guy? We've decided guys who wear suits go to jobs. Normal guys dates someone who uh, dresses somewhat differently and lays down on people's couches when she walks into their house instead of sitting. And those two. Two conventionally attractive people like that fell in love and got married? How would you even, like... I mean, Peter, just think about the concept. It could last up to four seasons on, say, ABC in the late 90s. Just yeah. think I'm, Just think about it. You don't need to respond now. I want you to take some time. I want you to just think about the possibilities in that concept of two complete opposite people. Attractive white people. <laughs> Listen. One who wears a suit, one who doesn't. Think about it. When I'm watching ABC in the 90s, I I just got used to the concept of hanging with with Mr. Cooper, okay? I just adjusted to the TGIF block. You know, I just adjusted to the idea. You're like, am I dizzy because I'm in Spin City? (laughs) Oh, my God. I think I like Spin City. Spin City is great. I mean, it's not. Spin City was a television program I watched in the 90s is what you just communicated to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was Michael J. Fox. <laughs> and uh, what's his name from Curb and like... Richard um, Kind? Yeah, Richard Kind. Um, so anyways, so he runs into the radio station against his better judgment and is like, hi. And because uh, she works at a radio and plays cool music. And they immediately start kissing and then they kind of start talking and he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll see you at the reunion. He walks out, walks back in. She starts interviewing him about uh, where he's been. And he responds. He's acting weird because his back is to a window. And he's like, doesn't respond well. And like, has all. It's that thing like where you practice speech for a long time. Like, when I meet this person, I'm going to say this person. And he like has this idea of something that will sound cool and comprehensive. And it comes out terribly. And she has no idea what he's talking about. And then he leaves and he calls her and is like, that didn't go well. Can we have dinner later? He also, as he walks around the town, sees his mom, sees his dad who's died, <laughs> goes to visit his old house, which has been turned into an Ultimart in a very funny scene where he's like, you can't go home, but I guess you can shop there. <laughs> like, can't go home again. He's fully di- he's fully disassociating at this point where he's like, what are you doing here to oh, yeah. a... What are uh, you... Where do you a, live? Like, a... To the to yeah, a service. Where do you live? Where's your what's your boss's name? Where does he live? I'm not gonna tell you that. <laughs> okay, well, what's done is done. <laughs> like it's so it's so good. He then calls a psychologist and is like leaving messages, and he doesn't like. It's so funny when Alan Arkin gets up to go to the voicemail and then realizes who it is and just goes and lays back down and covers his face. Um, but he um, he was also away from home. He was sending checks to his mom that were either being stolen. Yeah. Like, where's the house? Where's all the money I was sending? She has dementia, and so she's not doing too well. His dad died three years after he left, and so he, like, 
literally pours one out for his dad. He runs into his best friend from high school, Jeremy Piven, uh, who is worst part of this movie. Holds this movie back. I remember. I liked him before, but I it's Jeremy. I mean, I used to like Jeremy Piven in the nineties. Um, he was in all these great John Cusack movies, Peter. Um, uh, he has one. He has one bit in this fucking movie. Ten years. Ten years. Um, I do like when he's arguing with the Steve so Pink character. I hate the fucking. Guy. Oh, he's the. I mean, I've turned on him much like John Cusack in real life turned on him. Um. Uh, when they stop being friends, and according to Jeremy P- – John Cusack, decorum does not talk about why they're not friends anymore. Jeremy Piven would loudly say to anyone that he's jealous of my entourage fame, which doesn't – like, again, I don't know what John Cusack is really like. I see interviews. I've seen movies. I've heard what he's talked about. Doesn't seem to me that John Cusack would be the type of person who uh, – he may have, like – not want to be friends with Jeremy Piven because when he be- got Entourage, he became the most annoying person on the face of the earth. Like, that could be a guess that I would have of why maybe Entourage played a role in the end of their friendship. But that is what Jeremy Piven says happens. Anyways, they used to be really good friends and he was in a ton of movies with them. Uh, she drives him around. And again, some very funny scenes about like a, a hitman dressed in black, like, you know, at a house showing and other things like almost all the scenes when they have those little moments are funny. Ultimart's funny. The wandering around the house where the security guy played by Steve Pink, the writer of the movie um, comes out as like, and, and John Cusack is like, can we talk shop as a security guard? Like, when can you kill someone? He's like, basically I can, if you're just standing on the yard and I don't like it, I can, I'm, I'm powered by the homeowners to kill you. And he's like, Whoa, far out. Um, uh, and, you know, he took a two-week course <laughs> to, to have the ability to kill someone. Um, he then goes on his date with Debbie, essentially. And, again, natural chemistry. I would not be surprised if a lot of this is impromptu conversation. They're catching up. They're talking. She's trading barbs with him. He's kind of accepting him and trying to explain. The gag in this movie that happens consistently that I think is very funny is that he doesn't lie to people about what he does for a living. People say, where have you been? What have you been up to? He says, hired assassin, professional killer. And everyone assumes that he's joking. Uh, even when he like, it, like when Jeremy Piven keeps asking about it after he gets high in the car and he's like, I freaked out. I joined the army. I'm a professional killer. And Jerry Pippen's like, okay, well, are you guys hiring? <laughs> like, no one believes that he's telling the truth up until the point that obviously both um, two people catch him in the act of, of murdering someone later in the movie, and they they handle it two ways. Jeremy Piven reintroduces himself and his job to John Cusack, and uh, and Debbie is like, people joke about the terrible things that they do. They don't do them. <laughs> like, you joke about being a professional killer. What, what is wrong with you that you don't know that that's wrong? Like, why would I need... Why would I assume that I, you're telling me the truth? I... Okay, so... <clears throat> through most of the movie until the very sad moment when Minnie Driver is like, you weren't joking, yeah. you weren't joking, yeah. right? Um, they get through the reunion. Um... And then she she sees him, you know, diffuse a violent situation in a very like artful way with a a, um, a drunk yep. guy. And he's like high school. Uh, then he 
And then he has a fight with his uh, his real life kickboxing coach and and kills him with a pen. And uh, Mini Driver sees him. Jeremy Piven and him help uh, get rid of the body, throw it into the incinerator in the basement, yada yada. Um, until that moment when Mini Driver sees him actually in a very like, violent moment. He has the pen in his hand. It's it's, it's very it's like a it's the first time that I think we've seen violence in a non funny way. Yeah, it's not supposed yep. to be a bit. Um, and uh, up until that point, I thought we were living, because the movie just disregards human life so much, even John Cusack talks about morality yeah. not mattering. I thought we were existing in a world where he could just tell his classmates that he's a professional killer and people would be like, eh, well, at least yeah. you're paying the checks. Like I thought we were playing in a space where people are just like, well, I ha- I live a dead-eyed capitalistic yep. existence. Like, I actually did you know, too. Now that people for money is not that much is not that much different than you know um, being like a finance guy, right? Like I thought the movie was making some sort of like social yep. statement there by having like a, a re- in a repo man yeah. kind of way. It's so funny you say like, that because now that you say that, I remember that's what I thought too the first time I saw it because everything about the murders and no one following up on anything and even like. The way the convenience store guy like handles uh, when the when that assassin comes in and they have a shootout and blows up the Altamart. Um, he's like, I'm pissed. I'm tired. I gotta get a new job. Like he's kind of like he's annoyed about it, but he's not like, holy shit. Like, and he didn't ask if anybody else yeah, is in the yeah. store. <laughs> so I I I think you're right. I think that was my my like, oh shit, this is real. And like it's it it's. Not that it's real that he's killing people, but, like, it matters in the same way it would in real life. Yeah, yeah. And and that uh, people were just thinking it yeah. was a bit the same exact – I mean, like, I, I, I didn't go back for my 10-year um, because I had a thing. I was um, – I was – I didn't – I had a thing where I was – I needed to be on my couch that day and not um, – not fly to yeah. Chicago to go to a class reunion. Also, Facebook's ruined um, the concept then, of class reunions because it's like, yeah, I haven't seen you in 20 years. I know what you had for breakfast yesterday. But I... Yeah. yeah. Or, like, I haven't seen you in 20 years, um, but uh, I know now that you have gone yeah. insane. I, I don't want to talk about Trump like, I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to yeah. talk about your weird political conspiracy theory yeah. beliefs anymore. But, like, you know, let's say hypothetically, if I went back for my 15-year reunion, um, I would maybe make something up about yeah. what I do. Partially because I don't like talking about work. Um, but um, I did – okay, so brief story. I forgot about this. They had a class reunion at a – it's not at the high school. Most places don't do it at the high yeah. school. It's weird. Um, class reunion uh, for my brother must have been 10. It couldn't be 20 because he's not 38. Um He's got to be 38. We're a year apart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It must have been 10. must have been 10. Um, so uh, I was in college and I um, – one of his uh, – his friends, my friends um, from his grade um, was coming in to go to um, his – the class reunion in Wrigleyville up the street for me. And my brother was in L.A. at the time and was like, no, I'm not going to my class reunion. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do that. And, um, my, he's got a great story for like, like a, he's got a cool job. If he went back to his reunion, like I made a ska CD. <laughs> People want to hear that. <laughs> People are going to, he brought the mm-hmm. boom box, the whole thing. Um, 
but he uh, he could still skank. <laughs> Uh, you know, just because these bones got old doesn't mean I, I can't. One, two, three. <laughs> Every conversation. <laughs> so it must have yeah. been his 10-year reunion or whatever. They were meeting at a bar upstairs in, 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 in Wrigleyville in Chicago um, instead of in, in, in uh, Lyle, mm-hmm. Illinois. Um, and they, uh, my, his friend was swinging through my apartment to, like, have a couple yeah. beers with me before he went to the reunion and then crashed at, like, uh, another friend's house. And... I had been taking mushrooms all day with uh, my friend Ryan <laughs> and I had just kind of come down from the weird, the yeah. weirdness. And I was just now in normal yeah. weirdness and I was drinking with him and I was like, I'll go to the class reunion as Charlie. So I went to my older brother's class reunion mm-hmm. as him. So I basically walked in, accessed the open bar and anybody that went up and talked to me, I just pretended like I was Ooh. Charlie. And so, um, there were, uh, his really close friends obviously knew yeah. who I was really close friends who were like, uh, one had a very weird reaction. She was like, you were such a fat little kid. Now you're hot. And then started hitting on me, which was weird. very yeah. weird. It was like, let me, let me bring your self-esteem down and yeah. then start yeah. hitting on you. But people that were outside that immediate circle immediately yeah. bought it. Um, they weren't were like similar heights. I thought you're like four or five inches taller than him. No, just a couple inches. Um, similar you're like, heights. You're like I had scoliosis um, and it got. <laughs> I'm a little bit broader than him, but like we were both yeah. pretty skinny at the time. Um, and uh, people would come up, and I I just made yeah. up something because I was like. I don't want to use the real thing. And eventually I was like, oh, I work at, um, at a, I, I work to help on um, innovation and design for industrial products. And then eventually uh, people would be like, oh, cool. What kind of products? And I'd be like um, adult apparatuses in the bedroom. So I told about 50 of his classmates that he helped design oh. dildos. <laughs> Because I I had had an interesting day. You're like, I modeled them like, off you know me. What? This is like, because you know how you guys yeah. all called me a dildo when I was in high school for all my ska band <laughs> stuff. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to go make dildos someday. <laughs> um, so I, I told about, yeah, I told about 50 of his classmates that basically I helped design. How do you uh, feel about that when you for, told them how it went? Um, Did he know? I forget. Did he? He, he didn't bo- he didn't know the night of. Oh, okay. He didn't know you were going that day. Oh, also the person working the front desk who handed yeah. out cards he was like, that. I remember you, Charlie. Oh, and I was yeah. like, I was like, I remember you. And she was wearing a name tag. Yeah. So I didn't that's, have to That's an amazing her. story. I can't believe I haven't heard that one yeah. uh, yet before. And at some point, I got called out by someone, and I literally just put my drink down to the bar, and I was like, I'm going <laughs> yeah. home. I just left. I, I wasn't there to reconnect yeah, yeah. with his Or friends. date his <laughs> people that used to have crushes on him or something. So, uh, yeah. So, we, so yeah, he's at the reunion. A lot of great 80s songs. All that kind of stuff. Um, we kind of... The reunion is actually really quick. It is. Um, it has a lot of those moments we talked about, like everyone kind of being a gremlin and, and Jeremy Piven like pursuing an old crush and like people being drunk and weird. And again, there's a really great scene where he – this person who seems well-adjusted was like, oh, can you hold my baby? And he's like, oh, I don't know about babies. And she's like, babies are good. Family's good. Life's good. And there's a very cute scene of John Cusack looking at this baby's eyes who keeps smiling at him like an adorable scene. Um, he – the 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 weird Stasi guy comes and he kills him. 
uh, with the pen and, and Mini Driver and Jeremy Piven both walk in on this. Um, and they decide they're going to go – They right before this, they, they were getting their coat and they were going to go on a vacation and figure out what their relationship could be. And then when she goes and gets her coat, she comes back to see him having killed someone and he repeats a mantra he says throughout this like, it's not me. Like, I'm not initiating this or I'm not – you know, again, taking away his own accountability for being an assassin. It's not me. someone else. I am a proxy for the people that are paying to kill you. So he goes back to the hotel. She confronts him there. And has a really good scene of like, you don't get to have me. I'm not going to be your – I'm not going to be your reopening. You're not supposed to do these terrible things. What You're you're an actual – I've been jokingly calling you a psychopath. You are a psychopath and I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to pause there because that movie ends with them together. There is – there was a lot of different endings where they don't end up together. He ends up dying or something like that. And George Armitage specifically was like, everyone hated that I killed Alec Baldwin in Miami Blues, I didn't want to make the same mistake, and I lightened up the movie anyways a little bit, so I'm going to make this a lighter ending where I can figure out a way that the audience can be satisfied with them getting together. When I went and read reviews, retrospectives, and other things about this movie, the biggest criticism is that Minnie Driver has this fantastic like moment for her character of saying, yes, I had a crush on you, yes, I was interested in the cute boy who came back. I don't want to date a murderer who I haven't seen in 10 years and has a really great scene expressing that. And then at the end for her to go, well, you saved my dad, so I guess we can just be together and fuck it. Like some people feel like that is a betrayal of both the scene and her character. I I think the fact that at the end of the movie, yeah. um, he is giving up being a hitman um, is like of kind of crucial to that yeah. conversation. <laughs> and this and the fact that this is a comedy movie is crucial to that conversation. A romantic comedy like, uh, specifically. A romantic comedy. We're like, yeah, he's probably not going to if he didn't get murked in this movie, he's not going to get murked off yeah. camera at, 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 you know, 5 minutes after the yeah. you know, when they get to the next gas station. The point is that like he killed the guy that most wanted him dead. They can hit the like uh his, he burned um all his previous, you know, uh, uh, um, yeah. associations. He fired his therapist. He gave Joan Cusack a yeah. fat stack, and then she burned yeah. down the office. Yeah. Literally, like that. They they're ready to they're ready yeah. to part ways, man. Like, yeah, I um, and I I think that I think that like it, it's one of those things where him giving up that and being like, actually, I'm ready to pursue the next yeah. part of my life or whatever is like fine, like. Because of the lightness of tone. Yeah, I don't necessarily – I'm glad they got together. I'm not one of those people that would – I probably would have found the Miami Blues ending disappointing because I think they are so good together. But I understand the criticism at least. Like it's a really good scene. It is a little undercut. So. I, I understand the criticism. There's also like five Godard movies like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway. There's uh, there's Barry. Yeah. There's like – There's a lot of media a lot if you of don't want the, that... the hitman to get together with the girl. And it, from start to finish, takes the fact that he's a killer more seriously. Yeah, that is a crucial point. This movie does not take it all that seriously. Um, I think the criticism is like, in this scene, Minnie Driver takes it seriously for her, and then she changes her mind. But anyway, uh, he opens the envelope finally and realizes that the person who's going to who's who's been lived a terrible life but is going to turn stooly for the FBI is Minnie Driver's dad. They have a huge mansion house. 
that he sees at one point. She d- he does have a conversation with his dad. Is like get the basically like I didn't like you then. Please don't stick around. Blah blah blah. Um, so he goes back to the house and intercepts him about to get his dad about to get killed by Grocer, who has a sniper rifle, who's going to do the job and then is going to kill uh, Blank and go do the union. Uh, he stops him. Very funny scene where he he pulls the dad into the car and says, "Look, I was you're." You've done some really terrible shit. I'm a hitman. I was hired to kill you. I don't know if it's because I have a newfound respect for life or I'm in love with your daughter, but I'm saving your life. And it does a jump flash cut to Grocer being like, that guy either has is in love with his daughter or has found a new or has a newfound respect for life. Like it's a very funny scene because one of the things that they've been implying is that because Blank is a cold-blooded assassin, that he is because they he doesn't know that he's been hired to kill her dad. Everyone else knows he's been hired to kill her dad. So everyone else is assuming that he is getting close to her as a way to kill the dad and don't, didn't think that he was actually like romantically interested in her. There's a scene where Hank Azari and his partner are like, nah, look, he's using her. It's full of shit. Uh, and that's when he realizes, oh, he, he does it. He is in love with this person's daughter. Um, he goes in and has like a, a great, great action sequence where he's both professing his love and and explaining in a better way where he's been for the last 10 years, why he did that. He tells this story of like the Gulf of um, what the Gulf of Kuwait being on fire and maybe like feeling a connection to God in life and that maybe his mantra was incorrect and blah, blah, blah. While he's doing all of these like shooting people that aren't that you don't even see through the door and putting them in a bathtub and like kind of really – Again, in a in a moment of competency, really saving their lives and killing everyone. It ends with a thing that's second nature to him. He's able yeah. to activate because he's like, well, this is the part of me you need right yeah. now. <laughs> it's a really good sequence. It ends with a conversation with Grocer and him that, again, is very, very funny, where they're still debating whether he should join the union, asking if they're out of bullets. They end up blowing away the two FBI agents together and – Dan Aykroyd's like, see, wasn't that fun killing those two guys together? This could be us all the time. Like, he's ready to go back at any possible point and still have him in the club. Uh, again, very Stephen Rutenberry. Um, and and the, the important part is also that, like, he he does like killing. Oh, he it's loves it. That, like, he, he walks he's... around like a fucking goon. With his, like, you know, with his two guns constantly pointed straight out like he's a kid who just got a couple pistol sets and just loves shooting them till they're out of bullets and then pulling out new guns and doing the same thing. Like, the joy with which Dan Aykroyd loves killing people is so amazing. Yeah, and and, uh, and while um, Blank is not doing, Martin is not doing, like... Um... Marvin is not doing like uh, John Wick shit where like, you know, it's happening lightning fast and his reflexes are impossible, almost preternatural. Uh, he does do little things that would give you an edge yeah. in a fight. And it's like the sort of thing that like, you know, like I would do in like Rainbow Six Siege. Yeah, like I'm going cr- like, to crouch stand- and I'm going to shoot this guy's legs when he comes up the stairs as opposed to being at, at uh, eye level. He expects yeah. us. Yeah, he expects me to be in this door, so I'm yeah. going to stand in this door. I he's fully exposed at this point, so if I just like walk down these yeah. stairs, I'm fine. Like it's it's he's doing like he he's he's been he's been in this situation so many times that like it's kind of second nature, and he's like almost like taking on personal risk because he's like I actually want to continue this conversation, Debbie. Like yeah, I know I, the <laughs> whole juxtaposition about? with him, which ends with him going. So you don't have to answer now. 
but will you marry me? And the dad being like, you have my blessing from the bathtub is so goddamn funny. Um, Apparently that was Richard Armitage. Uh, his his decision was like, they they were having yeah. trouble nailing the ending. And he was like, you know what? That's the last real yeah. line in the movie. After that, it's just them yeah. driving off. And like, the point of this is not that they're the most ideal relationship or whatever. Like, romantic comedies are not intended to be like, this is what love This is yeah. what you should yeah. be pursuing. It's supposed to, you're supposed to go, you know, these people are both kind of fucked up, but, like, they did the necessary growth to be together, and isn't that sweet? And, like, you can apply that general lesson yeah. to you. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think, obviously, I had no – I think that's why I connected to it. Like, a relationship doesn't have to be perfect, but can – and no one has to have, like, a perfect past – or or you shouldn't have expectations of people to be perfect in the way they handle things and like that you can have a good relationship through that and th- you know that's the scene at the end like um where where Debbie is kind of narrating like you know if you you know uh it's not the set something free it's like some people say forgive and forget and i say why don't you just like forget <laughs> like there's no point trying to forgive all this stuff that doesn't apply to you if you want to be with someone just go be with but that person ends with the Violent Femme song that's kind of been a bookend to this movie. Um, another song, by the way, that I definitely hadn't heard before this movie, I don't think. Um, but I didn't get into the Violent Femmes to like 10 years later for some reason. I think this was just got a little bit overplayed and then I finally got this album. And I was like, oh, this album fucking rules. But it can be easy to get sick of Blister in the Sun, I think. Uh, and so. Yeah. Um, last thing we didn't mention it, the only scene. Um, the the my favorite scene of the movie is when they're at breakfast together and grocer sees them. They both are paper bagging it, or like one has it under their napkin, their guns, and they're having that other confrontation of the movie in between ordering at a small town, uh, small town diner. There's two very lines that I think about constantly, which is um, when grocer finally stands up and starts threatening him, and he's like, "Yeah, why don't I put a bullet in your fucking head and fuck the brain hole?" <laughs> like. The, the little like him pushing the waitress out of the way as he's yelling that line with a clearly he stopped pretending he's holding a paper bag, but clearly just has his hand in a paper bag holding a gun is very funny. But my yeah. actual favorite line at the movie is like where he's ordering an omelet. He's like, I'll take a white egg omelet. And she's like, what What do you want in your omelet? Nothing. Nothing in the omelet at all. <laughs> she's like, well, that's not technically an omelet. He's like, well, I'm not trying to get into a semantic argument about you. I just want the protein. Like, so yeah. such a funny line. And the fact that he's engaging in that argument in this scene with Grocer because he's like, why are you like, I'm not trying to have a debate with you right now. Why are you trying? Why are you trying to debate me about my order? Just go make the order. But, like, he has enough time to focus on that. It's such, like, a very specific, not just a gross point playing thing, but I think a very specific John Cusack thing. Where these little, like, flourishes of conversations and dialogue are always slipped into his movie. Because it's, like, he, I I don't know why, but, like, it is such a very specific, I'm going to pause this conversation because this person's being odd and I'm going to confront that for a second with this very funny line and then I'm going to go back to what I'm doing and that's like such a big part of high fidelity and say anything too and I just I love that moment it's such a funny moment it makes me laugh every time and it's it's a uh, similar to the, I was talking about J- uh, the Joan Cusack yeah. thing where she's like she's actually very competent she's yeah. just weird um, 
Similar to that, the idea that both of them have these hyper-specific orders and they need to actually order that hyper-specific yeah. thing. And the waitress is just like, that's a weird order. Can Like, are you sure you don't want yeah. onions in there? Like, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, like, is an inverse of what the scene would normally be, which is like, you're trying to make an annoying waitress go yeah. away. And so you both order a number four, and we're like, our number four comes with nine yeah. sides. Which of these six sides yeah. do you want? On Tuesdays, these three sides are happening. Like, yeah. the, 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 the unfunny version of that is, is the inverse, which is that they just say, this conversation doesn't, we're just sitting Yeah, we just want you to go away. Whatever the, easy, <coughs> whatever the easiest thing is to say, and then you'll go away. Yeah, that's the, that's, you've seen that a million times in these movies, like, that, like, just, you're trying to make someone go away, but, like, there's always more dialogue there, and the inverse of this is, like, they're trying to make her go away, but they're both so fucking weird that, like, she's like, I only have more questions because I want to make sure that if I bring you food, it's what you want, like, they, they somehow come up with a weird way, and it's, it is the half-commitment thing that they talk about, I, I talked about earlier, and probably lead to me to find my final thoughts. It's, he both went in there, and he's like, I am ordering my yeah. fucking fake That I need thing. for my hitman energy, which is important to me. Yeah, my hitman energy. Um... Because there's a bunch of there's a bunch of moments in the movie where you pay attention when he's eating and drinking, and you're like, he chose club soda instead of yeah. alcohol, and he chose this, but and he's like trying to keep himself yeah. fresh while he's on the he's on the job, um, and the fact that like grocer is taking some weird like supplement yeah. pills, whatever, he's taking basically Alex Jones pills, um, and uh, the fact that like he can't. Just say a number four and deal with the consequences. He needs to order his specific weird order, but also he needs to commit to the reality where he shoots a guy right in broad daylight. (laughs) Like, he needs to commit to both of these realities because in his head, he's like, I am both of these people. I'm a a heartless murderer, but also I'm just like a really torn up internally guy with like a lot of, a lot of strength that I have never seen. And he also talks about like, the image is his emotional protection from what he's doing. Like, you know, I'm the man in black, lone gunman. Like, he, that's what he tells Grocer why he doesn't want to join. He's like, I like the look. I like the dress. He has all these, like, philosophies that, like, make him not guilty of any of these crimes and things like that. And so, like, have, being a healthy, protein-rich, energy-filled diet is a part of that reality that he's constructed for himself. And so it's like he can't help but a ordering it, as you're saying, but also defending it as like, here's why I need it, because this is a part of like, I need the protein. I need the protein because I need to stay energetic and alert. Why do I need to stay energetic alert? Because my mind is trained as a hit. Like, it's like it's his own narrative that he needs to keep up to. And so he needs to say it out loud like a mantra to believe it. It's it, it, it you're you're absolutely correct. It's a um, it's something that he is he has to be committed to because without that image, he is nothing. He's a blank. He's a, a hollow a hollow space. And I I you know, I don't know. Like you know, I I said at the beginning, like I don't really identify with this movie as much as the other ones this month. But like we ended up having a lot of personal things to say about this. And I do think that um, the most relatable thing, weirdly enough, here. 
as someone who doesn't pine for his high school ex-girlfriend, as someone who uh, doesn't murder people for a living, um, as somebody, as, as somebody, and someone who, uh, you know, just there's a lot of little pieces here that, like, I, I don't really care about going back to my high school reunion, that kind of thing. Um, I find one piece very relatable, and that's the fact that he's constantly half committed to these things. And, like, the thing that makes me happiest in life is committing to one or one path or the other. And if I realize that I have committed to the wrong thing, being able to go, you know what, actually, let's let's get the fuck out of here. Like, it's the most empowering thing in the world in life to make bold choices. And, like, I'm not saying... uh uh, uh, you should join my uh, multi-level marketing scheme. Um, I am saying, however, that living your life in a in a weird limbo state between uh, existence and non-existence, or between you're living between two lives that lives that you aren't sure which life you want to live in, it's inherently self-destructive. You have to pick the person you want to be and try to be that person. And if it doesn't work, keep moving yeah. forward. Yeah, I'm glad you ended up like – I knew this – you had mentioned that you'd only seen this one once before, didn't have as much of a connection. Obviously, this was my gateway into John Cusack. So, um, very happy that you ended up liking it uh, as much as as much as I was hoping. And also, to, I mean, to the point that you're saying, oh, I should watch it again soon because I think my wife would, would like it. So, um, I'm glad that's where you ended up on this because, yeah, this, this movie is so formative and I can't watch it without just, like, having a rush of my own nostalgia coming back from being in high school and watching this movie over and over. Um, so, yeah. <coughs> uh, also, apologies if, if this is edited to remove my coughs. Ah, I still have a cough and we're recording a lot. Um, next week, we're doing Say Anything, which should be an easy one to talk about a lot because uh, – I can't think of a more formative movie for a certain type of uh, uh, 90s white guy, I guess. Um, so Yeah, I mean, I, I, I watched it in high school. I have a very specific memory tied to it. Um, and, like, uh, yeah, I, I had a strong reaction to watching this at the perfect yeah, age. Me too. And we will discuss that next week on We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. 
show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>